0: It is possible to look at Moldova as Ukraine on a smaller scale. The parallels are not precise, but there is enough to be going on with. Like Ukraine, Moldova was once part of the Soviet Union. Like Ukraine, Moldova has seen a portion of its territory hived off by a Russian proxy regime. For Donbass, read Transnistria. And like Ukraine, Moldova is unprotected by membership of the EU or NATO. Since Russia attacked Ukraine on February 24th, there has been concern that Moldova might also be in Moscow's sights, with the weird, unrecognised statelet of Transnistria as a bridgehead for invasion. All summer, various Moldovan institutions, government buildings, churches, hospitals and airports have been the subject of bomb threats, so far mercifully empty. But there are fears that this campaign is some sort of PSYOP's prelude to more destructive disruption. Defending Moldova is a stiff challenge, geographically, militarily and legally. Moldova is tiny, landlocked, has only a few thousand troops and no air force to speak of and is constitutionally obliged to neutrality. Russia already has troops inside Moldova's borders. The Russian military presence in Transnistria is estimated at around 1,700 strong. How threatened is Moldova? Should the rest of Europe act now to shore it up? And if so, how? And how did Transnistria get there anyway? This is The Foreign Desk.
1: The Transnistrian regime, you know, exists because of this kind of duo between Victor Goshan, who is the head and founder of Sheriff Tiraspol, and Rafnaselski, who is the current so-called president of Transnistria and they represent an oligarchic regime, whereas the rest of the population in Transnistria is just frustrated with the corruption of this regime and with the lack of economic opportunities there.
0: If it's not covered by any form of NATO security guarantee, it probably is not defendable. Now, on the basis, of course, that NATO membership is a long way away, what I would see as being essential for Moldovan security is some form of bilateral security agreements with Britain, with America, and with other willing states able to reinforce Moldova in the event of hostilities. And frankly, anything else is just words. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we will hear from Moldova's former Deputy Prime Minister for Reintegration about how worried Moldova is, and from former NATO Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe General Sir Richard Sheriff about how worried about Moldova the rest of Europe should be. But first, for a glimpse of Transnistria, the tiny pro-Russian enclave huddled along Moldova's border with Ukraine, I'm joined from the Moldovan capital of Chisinau by Valerio A policy expert and program manager at Watchdog.md, and by Paula Erizanu, a Moldovan Romanian journalist and author. I guess what we're trying to do here is explain to our listeners the strange semi partitioning of Moldova between Moldova and Transnistria, or as it enjoys calling itself, the Pridnestrovian Moldavian Republic. Paula, I'll start with you. Is there a quick way to explain how Transnistria happened?
1: Well, I mean, it's quite helpful to think of Transnistria as basically Russia's way of keeping an influence on Moldova. So Transnistria was part of the USSR before the rest of Moldova was occupied by the Soviet Union. So since the 20s, rather than after the Second World War. And then when Moldova tried to reach independence, reach autonomy at first and then independence in the late 80s and the early 90s, Moscow basically uh, wasn't very happy with this move away from them and Moldova's kind of more openness towards Romania and even like ideas about reuniting with Romania. So this is basically where the conflict between Transnistria and Moldova has started Basically, the regime in Transnistria wants to stay close to Moscow um, since the late 80s, early 90s, whereas the rest of Moldova wanted to become more independent and to move away from Russia.
0: Paula, what is the relationship between Transnistria and Moldova proper like now? Is there any kind of cooperation between the governments? Is it possible to travel from one to the other back and forth?
1: Yeah, it's possible to travel from one to the other, but you need to kind of pass this so-called customs and have IDs on you. So there is collaboration between the Moldovan government and the Transnistrian authorities. And for instance, since the war in Ukraine broke out, Transnistria lost a lot of its trade that it did with Ukraine. And so the Moldovan authorities have actually cooperated with Transnistrian authorities in order to redirect the trade. Uh, via Moldovan customs. And even beyond that, like the Transnistrian population is very integrated in Moldova. For instance, almost everyone has Moldovan papers, so Moldovan passports. And also a lot of people work in Chisinau because there are more jobs here. So they would commute every day back to Transnistria. And a lot of young people who are looking for opportunities are looking towards Chisinau, and before the war, they were looking towards Odessa as well, because that's very close to Kiraz, and uh, Transnistria. And uh, more recently, there has been a shift in the interest of young people in Transnistria away from Moscow and towards the West. So more people are going to Czech Republic or to Poland in order to study there or to work there.
0: I mean, Valerio, would you say there is any kind of coherent national identity among Transnistrians distinct from Moldova in the way that I don't know people here in the UK might describe themselves as Scottish or Welsh before they describe themselves as anything else? Do people who live in Transnistria think of themselves as Transnistrian citizens first and foremost?
2: Well, no, it's a total mess and confusion in people's minds created by all these permanent informational attacks on their minds and toxic Soviet type propaganda, which tends to convince these people that they are something like, I don't know, Soviet people still, even more than 30 years after the fall of Soviet Union. And of course this narrative changed a little bit in last I would say 10 years and it switched to so-called Russian world which has to include all the like both Slavic and non-Slavic population on the former territory of Soviet Union. So which is the actual goal of the of the Russian propaganda first is to confuse people And confused people are easy to manipulate and to use in the Russian-specific goals as wars or destabilizations in the region and so on.
1: If I may add, so ethnically, actually, Transnistria is like 60% Russian-speaking and about 40% Romanian-speaking. And actually... Putin and the Russian um, authorities talk about defending the rights of Russian speakers, you know, outside Russian borders. But actually in Transnistria, it's the Romanian speakers who are getting discriminated all the time russian is the only language used in the public services and also romanian language schools have been closed since the 90s and the few remaining ones are constantly harassed so the kids there have to you know go into kindergartens and use very tiny desks for instance you know because there is no proper space for them to just be Im- involved in the process of education. And there were sit-ins, you know, in the 2000s where dozens of kids were just sitting in front of their school for 40 days, sleeping in there with their parents and their teachers because they didn't want their schools to be shut.
0: Just to follow that up, Paula, before the last few months, at least, Transnistria only really used to appear on ...news bulletins, or at least in Western European media, as kind of a punchline in travel sections. It, it gets written up and depicted as this sort of Soviet theme park, the last place in the world you can go and still see these you know, glorious mosaics of Lenin staring into the middle distance and hammer and sickle motifs emblazoned on anything... How accurate is that really, this idea of Transnistria as a sort of Soviet theme park? And and how seriously do the people who live there take any of that?
1: I like the comparison to a Soviet theme park because this is exactly what it feels like when you go there. And actually, if you think about it economically, Transnistria is a monopoly. It's more like, you know, some small town in America that's only dominated by one business. This is what Transnistria is like at the moment. Plus, you know, it has a lot of illegal trade because it's an unrecognized statelet. And so Moldova doesn't control Transnistrian borders. And so there's a lot of illegal trade. So a lot of oligarchs from Russia, for instance, but also from the region would um, use Transnistria in order to get to the EU. So economically, you know, this is meaningless but at the same time as Valerio said you know the schools the media there is constantly doubling this kind of propaganda and this idea that transnistrians are different you know from the rest of moldovans that they are the constant victims and you know moldovans killed them you know in the 1992 war between the two parts of the river nistru i mean in the in the consciousness you know of of the young people there the Soviet kind of paraphernalia doesn't really play a big part at all. It's more like decor, you know, and the kind of historical monuments that you would get anywhere else. But at the same time, the system of education there is still very Soviet and it still preserves a lot of the tropes of Soviet education and it's more authoritarian than, you know, the system of education in the rest of Moldova, for instance.
2: If I may add very short to that, this is actually an appearance and and the result of a non-existing modernization in the last 30 years, that you'll have a lot of conserved spaces and buildings from the Soviet time and not the proper continuation of the Soviet Union. Because in 90s and even now and, and later, that was a space of a very wild capitalism in an illegal sphere without a proper control and a system of check and balances. And as a result of this wild capitalism, they got their one single monopoly company, a big holding which controls almost everything, retail, energy sphere, communications, politics. I mean, the so-called parliament and so-called president, which is affiliated to one single private holding, which is called a Sharif company. So this is probably the most weird part in that. that On one hand, it looks like incredible how you can combine the Soviet legacy and this Soviet nostalgia with this wild capitalism. But just look on Russia where they continue to combine the Soviet legacy, Soviet mythology, and with the Russian imperial mythology and narratives and they are opposite, but the Russian propaganda managed to create something like a synergy between those two and keep it as a, as a cornerstone of the modern Russian identity.
0: Paula, just finally, I'm just wondering if there is a long-term plan on either side of the river as to how this situation might get resolved, whether Transnistria hopes one day to be formally recognised by Russia, at least, and perhaps a couple of Russia's other weird little puppet semi-states like Abkhazia or South Ossetia, or whether there is a process being worked through by Moldova to try and bring Transnistria back into the country country?
1: Yeah, for sure. At the moment, I think it looks like the Moldovan authorities are just trying to maintain the kind of stability in the in the region. So they're not talking about reintegrating Transnistria in Moldova yet, because, you know, that would also attract the rage of Russia and would invite it, you know, here. But um, the Moldovan authorities kind of long term plan is more to do with economic opportunities in Moldova and EU integration. So Moldova has become a EU candidate status alongside Ukraine. And so this is what Moldova hopes will be the path towards the the country's uh, reintegration as well. Because, you know, if Transnistrians see that Moldovans are starting to live better, to have better job opportunities, then, you know, they will want to be part of Moldova. The Transnistrian regime, you know, exists because of this kind of duo between Viktor Gushan, who is the head and founder of Sheriff Tiraspol, and Krasnoselsky, who is the current so-called president of Transnistria. And they represent, you know, an oligarchic regime. They are just interested in their money. Gushan, you know, has German citizenship. They are not interested in, um, in fighting in Ukraine. They actually have properties in Ukraine. They have Ukrainian passports as well, if I'm not mistaken. And so, what they're interested in is just preserving their money, you know, and living a good life. Whereas the rest of the population in Transnistria you know, is just frustrated with the corruption of this regime and with the lack of economic opportunities there. And Moldova is already kind of struggling with mass emigration, but Transnistrian emigration is on a different scale. And so, you know, if the situation doesn't change, Transnistria might just become this empty land, you know, where only an oligarchic elite is left, a bit like the Wild West, except in the East.
0: Paola Erizanu and Valeriu Pasha, thank you both for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24, and joining me now from Chisinau is Alexandru Flanker, former Deputy Prime Minister for Reintegration for the Government of the Republic of Moldova. Alexandru, first of all, what is your sense of how concerned Moldova's current government is about the prospect of some sort of Russian or Russian-backed military operation against Moldova?
3: Well, the government is obviously concerned, the Prime Minister herself, Said publicly in one of her recent interviews is that they are concerned, they are considering all options. However, again, the government, the foreign minister, the prime minister, and the president uh, said on a number of occasions that as of now, they see no imminent risk of Russian military attack.
0: But is there evidence or are people concerned there's evidence of either preparations for an attack or at least of Russian meddling in Moldova, either through its presence in Transnistria or elsewhere in the country?
3: There is no direct indication that Russia would militarily attack Moldova anytime soon. And I think the Ukrainians take the credit for this because they're holding Russia back in eastern and southern Ukraine. However, people did feel concerned and worried, if not panicked, in the first week of the war, when the war spill-over effect and possible Russian military attack did seem to be imminent. Since then, things have changed. However, people are still worried. I mean, people have sort of got used to living with the war next door, but nevertheless, they still perceive Russia as a threat. Russia meddling, yes. To be honest, at this point, I think Russia would be more inclined to use political leverage to obtain some sort of government change in Moldova and thus obtain a loyal Moldova rather than attack its militarily and face new sanctions and possible harsher pushback from the West.
0: Well just to pick that point up what kind of political leverage does Russia have in Moldova are there politicians or political parties or sections of the public which are quite sympathetic to Russia
3: The largest opposition party the Socialist Party which was removed from power by the incumbent ruling party and by President Maia Sandu which has always been leaning towards Russia and I think For now, for Russia, for Moscow, and the Kremlin, the socialists are one of the key partners in Moldova. The socialists have never openly supported Russia's aggression against Ukraine. However, their message has been uh, Moldova should preserve its constitutional neutrality. In this particular case, by not taking sides and by not supporting Ukraine and by extension the West, but rather finding common language with Russia, it would appear that people in the Kremlin, the socialists, as such possible allies, especially because they're strongest opposition party.
0: I want to come back to that issue of Moldova's constitutional neutrality, because it's it's obviously become quite important in the current circumstances. But you said earlier that people in Moldova were getting used to living next door to the war, as you put it. But that notwithstanding, has anything changed in Moldova noticeably since February 24th? Is Moldova taking or trying to take any kind of precautions?
3: Not politically, unfortunately. Politically, little, if anything, has changed. Moldova's constitution was adopted back in 1994. And one of the constitutional clauses is that Moldova has permanent neutrality and cannot join any military alliances. And that has been unchangeable since then and until February 24th of this year. Unfortunately, that also means that there has never been a genuine broad public discussion about Moldova's security options. But how do we ensure our country's security short-term, mid-term, so long-term? And that has an explanation, because since uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, since the end of the wars in the Balkans in 1995, there has been a fragile peace and stability in Europe. And nobody was willing to revisit the arrangements that existed now russia's aggression against ukraine has canceled all of this there's no peace there's no stability and there's no balance of powers and this i think provides us an opportunity to revisit our security arrangements and security options again this could be done even within the constitutional neutrality but i think a genuine broad public discussion is needed to discuss whether or not Moldova should preserve its neutrality at all.
0: Do you see indications then of Moldova's current government trying to find a way around that constitutional neutrality? We saw, I think, earlier Russia banning the import of fruit from Moldova after there were suggestions that Moldova's prime minister had asked NATO to begin supplying Moldova with weapons.
3: To be very, very honest, I don't think there was an explicit call for military assistance for Moldova, because the assistance that the West, more specifically the EU through the European Peace Facility and the French government, the pledges that they have made, the French in particular, 40 million euro worth of military equipment, but all of this equipment is non lethal. So, this is obviously uh, intended to enhance Moldova's resilience and Moldova's security, but again, we're not talking about lethal weapons. And I think the greatest concern here, and this is in the back of everyone's mind in Moldova, is that people, I mean the broader public in general, and the government more specifically, are worried that Russia could overreact to any military assistance provided to Moldova by the West. And then again, in the back of their minds, everyone understands if Moldova were to denounce its neutrality, and openly state they desire to join NATO, what will happen is that Russian troops would pop up on Moldovan soil way before any NATO force would. It is in Moldovan's genes. I mean, generations of grandparents and great grandparents witnessed Russia's military occupation back in 1940, and then in 1944 again, deportations, gulag, and Moldovan know And Moldovans remember what Russia's so called liberation is, in fact. And this is what Moldovans avoid most of all.
0: That was Alexandru Flanka, Moldova's former deputy prime minister for reintegration. Do stay with us. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Finally, on today's show, I'm joined by General Sir Richard Sheriff, who served as NATO's Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe from 2011 to 2014. Sir Richard, first of all, let's put you in a different role for a moment on the other side of the fence. If you were looking at this from Russia's perspective militarily, do you think that taking a swipe at Moldova would make any sense at all from Russia's perspective? putting ourselves in the mind of the man, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. And the answer is, from his perspective, if he was able to do so, it would absolutely make sense to take a swipe at Moldova and Georgia as well, and probably Kazakhstan. You know, his long term vision is to reestablish a Russian empire. And that means not only removing Ukraine from the map effectively, but also including those four other former Soviet republics of Moldova, specifically, as you mentioned, but also Georgia. But if we look at Moldova specifically, would that potentially follow a similar pattern to what we've seen in Ukraine? Because in many respects, they do seem quite similar. Obviously, Moldova is much smaller, and we will come back to the implications of that. But you already have this pre-established bridgehead, if you will, for Donbass in Ukraine, read Transnistria in Moldova. Absolutely. But of course, also in Transnistria, you've got Russian so-called peacekeeping troops there too. But of course, all oh, that wow. presumes that he's got the means to do so. And right now, he hasn't got the means to do so. What kind of means would you need, though, if you were interested in launching yourself at Moldova? Because clearly one of the difficulties that Russia is having in Ukraine is that Ukraine is absolutely enormous and Moldova really very much is not. You're not going to need a lot to gobble up Moldova if you're Putin. Because, of course, exactly as you say, it's not the size of Ukraine, and and therefore a significant smaller military force would be able to do so. But even that is probably beyond him at the moment. He's made virtually no progress in the last couple of months. The Ukrainians are hitting back quite successfully. His supply lines are stretched. His manpower is extremely stretched. So I think the probability of an attack on Moldova right now is fairly low. But nevertheless, it exists. And the so what out of that is that there does need to be a NATO and Western strategy for the post-Soviet republics like Moldova. We'll talk about the other post-Soviet republics, a couple of which you've already mentioned, Georgia and Kazakhstan. But looking at Moldova in particular, whose leaders clearly are concerned that at some point Russia may come for them. How defendable is Moldova now? If it's not covered by any form of NATO security guarantee, it probably is not defendable. To be defendable, you've got to put capabilities there and be ready to support them. And at the moment that's not happening. So what kind of capabilities would Moldova need? Suppose NATO decided to take Moldova's government at its word, realize that there was a threat and offer willingness to shore Moldova up. What would it need to do that? Well, I think, you know, one would almost take a step back and say, this is why one's got to look across the board, not only at Moldova, but Georgia as well, and Ukraine too. In a post-conflict, one day the shooting will stop, Ukraine will need security guarantees. And the only security framework which is going to guarantee security for those three countries is to be part of NATO. Now, that is a long stretch. It's a long way away. And there's a lot to happen before the 30 member states of NATO are ready to take them on. But that is my firm view. If Ukraine had been part of NATO, if that promise in 2007 at the Bucharest summit had been followed through and Ukraine had joined NATO, and NATO capabilities had been in the air, on the ground in Ukraine, then there would have been no Russian invasion. So take that forward to Moldova. What do you need? Well, you need an allied capability on the ground and in the air. Now, on the basis, of course, that NATO membership is a long way away. What I would see as being essential for Moldovan security is some form of bilateral security agreements with Britain, with America, and with other willing states able to reinforce Moldova in the event of hostilities, demonstrably exercising in Moldova, demonstrating capability to Moldova, putting aircraft in the air above Moldovan airspace in order to demonstrate that NATO is ready to protect it. And frankly, anything else is just words. But can Moldova be equipped in the way that Ukraine has been? Or is Moldova's military and indeed Moldova's population simply too small to allow that to be done effectively? Do you actually need to have personnel on the ground? Clearly, it's apples and pears, this Moldova and Ukraine. But nevertheless, I mean, Moldova's a small country. It is one of the poorest countries in Europe. But with the right targeted assistance to the Moldovan armed forces, training equipment appropriate for the size and scale, you could produce a very useful capability in Moldova as well. But it would not be enough on its own to deter a Russian invasion. Well, let's think a bit about some of those other post-Soviet territories you mentioned. Georgia, in particular, is one which has long held aspirations for being part of the Western security architecture. Is that something you think does need to be sped up? And I guess the follow-on question to that is, how practical an option is that when Russia continues to occupy a couple of portions of Georgia in the form of South Ossetia and Abkhazia? I mean, I have to say I've had a 180 degree turn on my thinking on Georgia. I thought in 2007 that it was a promise too much for NATO to promise membership of NATO to both Georgia and Ukraine, because there was no political prospect of NATO backing it up with the sort of capabilities required. Given where we are now, given Putin's long-term intent, given that there will never be peace in Europe while Putin or a Putin-type regime is in the Kremlin, so we have to think long-term, a generational challenge here. The only guarantee for Georgian security is for it to be part of NATO. Look, we should not be frightened by the fact that Russia occupies 20% of Georgian territory in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. I would say do it as a fait accompli and speed it up. And now is a time of opportunity to bring them under the NATO umbrella while Russia is so bogged down and so fixed in Ukraine that it simply couldn't do anything about it if NATO did that. The reality of the bureaucracy of NATO membership and the challenges of NATO membership, which of course we're seeing with Sweden and Finland's entry and the way the Turks are blocking it, it doesn't happen overnight. The So what out of that? Exactly the same for Moldova. Bilateral security arrangements guarantees from countries like Britain, France, America to guarantee Georgian security. British, French, American troops training in Georgia, demonstrating that it can be reinforced quickly British French American aircraft and ships off the Georgian coastline practicing rehearsing and exercising demonstrating that commitment the time of danger it strikes me is now because NATO has got training teams on the ground in Georgia I'm sure there'll be similar things in Moldova and if Russia was able to and it had the capability which it doesn't it could point exactly the same finger at Georgia as it did at Ukraine and saying you're part of the NATO set up we're going to come and take you over The only way to stop that is to preempt it. General Sir Richard Sheriff, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week. And look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.